0: Episode 410, this is CLAT2, your friendly host. In this episode, we're going to continue our coverage of all the different packages that get installed by default on Slackware Linux. As it turns out there are lots of open source packages that get installed on a Linux system, and a lot of us don't really even realize it because we don't necessarily have the occasion to interact with them or we don't interact with them directly. They get invoked by some other thing that we're doing, used by other applications. So we're looking at every single one that gets installed and exploring what they do. Now, if you're not running Slackware, that's okay. All of these applications are open source, so you can install them on non- Slackware, Linux systems, or even non-Linux systems, usually, because, again, they're open source. So, let's get started. We're in the D for development software series uh, of Slackware, and the first one that we've got to cover this episode is Doxygen. D-O-X-Y-G-E N. Doxygen is a documentation generator, which seems very exciting, and in fact it is. I will say that in real life, Doxygen has made my work uh, at certain occasions, uh, depending on the job, but there, there have been several times I could cite in real life where Doxygen has just made things so easy for me. It's been a real joy to work with. Now, there's something important to know about Doxygen and that is that when it says that it's a documentation generator, it is not talking about magical general user documentation that gets generated from your open source project. That would be amazing. I mean, it would probably put a lot of people out of jobs, but, I mean, it would be nice to get automated documentation for users that was actually useful from some kind of script. That would be pretty neat. But we're not there yet, and Doxygen is very specifically generating docu- generating documentation really meant for developers. Now that's not to say Doxygen can't be useful as just a general documentation build tool, but I will say that it's 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 specialization like the real reason that you would want to look at Doxygen is because it can look at your code at the source code in a in a project directory and generate in either html, rtf, believe it or not, or latex documentation about the inputs, so in other words the the required arguments, the outputs, so the return values, the the class names, the function names, the very vari- irrelevant variables, public and private and all these all this other information that yes you can glean all this information from reading the source code yourself but of course the the advantage to documentation is that in open source because there's an argument I guess I mean I don't know if anyone's making the argument but there is an argument that well open source is naturally documented you get to see the source code that is that's all the documentation you technically ever would need. It's just not very efficient all the time to just point people at a sor- at source code and say, well, just read that over, and you'll figure out how to, you know, write a new function or a new class or to use elements of our, of our framework. Documentation brings all of that knowledge and summarizes it into one concentrated location, which is really, really useful. And that's why Doxygen has helped me in the past, because sometimes I'll be either documenting or maybe um, writing a plugin for something like a Python. Uh, they'll have a Python API, and they'll you'll you'll be writing a Python plugin, but you don't know what a certain C function um, requires as its argument or something like that, or what what kind of value it returns, and so you need that information, and you can either scrub through all of the source code or you can just run doxygen against the source and you get all the information from from that so the cool thing is here that doxygen often could help you as a person it could help you even in cases when the project itself hasn't sort of hasn't adopted doxygen i have run doxygen on projects that aren't using doxygen it's just a local. I do. I do it locally. I, I run Doxygen, create a Doxygen, Doxygen configuration file, run it, and end up with documentation that the open source project does not provide. So it's it's really really useful. If I'm if I'm not making that clear, I want to make that very clear. It's really useful. Okay. So now let's look at how it does this. Well, actually, first. Well, no. Yeah. We'll we'll look at how this how it does this and. The, the way that it does this is it works against, it parses source code, and therefore Doxygen, if you're going to use Doxygen, you must use it on a project that Doxygen understands, or uh, um, on a project using a language that Doxygen understands. Doxygen supports C, C++, Objective C, C Sharp, PHP, Java, Python, something called IDL, which I actually don't know what that is, I've never looked into it, CORBA. Microsoft UNO Open Office Flavors. That's what it says about IDL. Also Fortran, V H D L and to some extent D, as in Delta D, the language D. And so if you're using any of those languages in a project, or if a project uses is, is written in those languages, then you can use Doxygen. So that that's a pretty good sample set of of popular languages. So there are there there's a good chance that the thing that you want to document is supported by Doxygen with with that list. As I said, you can use Doxygen to generate HTML or LaTeX or RTF, but you really shouldn't do RTF. It's a deprecated format. I don't know why they even bother going out to RTF. I'm assuming they're doing that because they don't know what else to go out to for Microsoft Word, but RTF is a is a horrible horrible format, you should never use it. So I'm just gonna say that it goes out to HTML and Latex. It also says that there is support for generating output in PostScript, hyperlinked PDF, compressed HTML, and Unix man pages. And, and the way that they say that there's support for that is I'm, it makes me think that what they what they're saying there is that with post-processing, you can easily get to those formats from the native HTML and LaTeX output, which makes sense to me because LaTeX certainly has a PDF engine, so that would take care of the postscript and the PDF, I think. And yeah, so it it makes sense. Okay, so let's look at how to get started. I guess I guess one way to get started, um, I guess the easiest way to get started would just would be to to create a, a sample project and and do that get and run Doxygen against it. So uh, the the sample project I mean I could sit here and, and write a bunch of C code or C++ code that was just for examples and I could could do that I'm not going to. Instead I'm going to use an actual project that I that I that that, that is active and and is maintained. It's a Java project that I'm working on and this is, I'll call it an example project. There's a folder here in the Java project. I'm, I'm building this in NetBeans, and so there is Apache NetBeans. And so there's, um, there's a certain directory structure that is kind of uh, I- encouraged-imposed. slash So in this case, all of my Java sources are in source-slash-org-slash-example-slash-example. So that's the reverse DNS name done as a directory structure. Now, I'm calling that out specifically because Doxygen by default parses, or, or rather searches the current directory for, for your source code, which I feel is probably relatively um, rare, probably. I don't know. I, mean, I guess not completely, but I don't know. I don't go to, into that many project directories and just find a bunch of C code and header files just right there in the parent, you know, in the in the top-level directory. So, for me, that that feels a little bit a little bit unlikely. Okay, so we have a, a project directory. Anyway, we've got we've got a project. We've got code squirreled away in a bunch of subdirectories, and that's um that's the that's a good start. So the the first step is to auto-generate with Doxygen a configuration file. This isn't a big deal. This is just a big empty template file that Doxygen makes available to you really, really easily so that you can get started by filling out values and reading comments and such uh, that, that already exist. I mean, the other way would be for you to go into Doxygen's documentation, find out what the required fields are, and fill everything out. But this makes it more of a, um, you know, you, you can kind of, it's a tour through the configuration file. And to generate this, it's just doxygen, d-o-x-y-g-e-n-dash-g, and then the name of the configuration file that you want to create. That is um, a name for the default configuration file. I have seen a lot of projects call their doxygen configuration file Doxy file, capital d-o-x-y-f-i-l-e. So that's what I call mine doxy file, and it takes a split second, and it tells you in it, in the output to go edit this, and then to run doxygen doxy file. So we need to edit it first. So I'm opening it up in Emacs. You can open it up in anything that you want, any text editor. And the first couple of values, most of these values are just kind of, you can leave them safely as their defaults, like the doxy file encoding, UTF-8, that works for me. Project name, um, I'll, I'll I'll give that a project name, I'll say my example project. Project number, I'm going to leave that blank for now, because it doesn't actually matter to me. Project underscore brief equals just a sample doxygen documentation. Get rid of that A. Uh, just some sample doxygen documentation. Okay. Uh, I think that's it for that sort of the, kind of the profile. Output underscore directory. This one's important. Um, I think by default it goes to slash TMP, which is okay, but not terribly convenient, really. I mean, I don't know about building my documentation to slash TMP. So I'm gonna make a new, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell it that I want my documentation stored in a directory called docs. Now that would be up to you, of course. It depends on how your build process works. Maybe you want it in, I don't know, um share docs or or well, you'd probably just want it in docs really and, and set your prefixes with your, your audit tools or CMake. But anyway, I'm gonna call I'm gonna put it into docs, D O C S. So that'll be that'll be a directory within my project directory where my documentation is placed. And I think the other thing that I want is the input. So if the documentation directory is the essentially the output, documentation directory is the output, we also need to define what our input is, or, or rather where our input is located. And that's the tricky thing. So by default, again, Doxygen looks in the current directory for all of your source files. But in my experience, most projects put it into at least a directory called source, SRC, or maybe, um, well, usually it's called source, really. So I'm going to... Tell it that my input equals source slash org slash example slash example slash, and that way it knows to look in that subdirectory for my Java my dot Java files. And there's there's a bunch of other um, values that you could define for your input. Um, I've never had a problem with this because I think I I must use very common extensions for my for my source code, but if you have a bunch of, you know, a lot of things that are mixed in with each other, then you might need to tell it the the value for input, for valid input files, such as uh, asterisk.cc, asterisk.cpp, asterisk.c++, and so on. And I don't need to do that, but obviously all of this stuff is just kind of in this file as as comments and as empty values, and so you are able to, to read through and find the, the different specific requirements for your project as you may either know them in advance, or as you may discover after running Doxygen. For instance, I think probably the, the very first time I ever ran Doxygen, I learned pretty quickly that the input value was particularly important because you'll run it, and it, it, it seems to do some fancy stuff, and then you open it up, and it's completely empty. There's no, no documentation, and the reason for that, of course, is that it didn't find any source code in your current directory because your current directory is full of readme files and author file, to-do file, and so, so on. So you have to tell it, oh, yeah, look in source directory or whatever. Okay, so scroll through uh, quite a ways again until you finally come upon a value or or a section, rather, configuration options related to the HTML output. Now, this should be defaulting to yes. Um, Yeah, it says the default value is yes, so that should be already on when you look at it. You would want to make sure that that was on and then you'd want to do a search probably just to make this a little bit quicker for uh generate underscore rtf and set that to no that's the default value for that one as well so that's probably safe and then generate underscore what's the other one latex the default value there is yes which is good and i have nothing against latex i'm going to set that to no for now because i know I happen to know that I don't actually need that all that much, um, but there you go. That's that's our configuration. So the big one to remember is the output or the 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 what is it? D- Documentation underscore dir or directory or whatever it's called, and then the input. Those are the two I think that are probably most most significant at first because you just you need to know where it's going to put the stuff, the files, and you need to it needs to know where to find the source code that you want it to parse and generate documentation for. Okay, now that that's done, I can run doxygen, and then, like I said, just point it to that doxy file. Doesn't take long for this to run, because I don't have that, it's not, there's not really that much um, source code. And now if I look in, in the docs directory, there's a new folder there called html. If I look in the folder for html, there's a bunch of files in there. There's HTML files, and PNGs, and JavaScripts, and CSS, and all kinds of stuff. But the the one that makes sense to pay attention to initially is the index.html file. And so I'm going to go into Firefox here, and I'm going to open a file, and navigate to my demo directory, and open up this index.html file within my project. And there we go. It says, uh, my example project, just some sample Docs Engine Docs documentation. Now, granted, this uh, little title page that it is automatically generated for me is not super impressive. There's not a whole lot here. I could, I can modify some values in Doxygen so that it, that it's, um, ingests some kind of template or, or some kind of, uh, yeah, sort of, um, what, what would be boilerplate, uh, text, sort of an introductory stuff. But for me, I think that's okay. This is blank. I'll just leave it blank right now. Along the top, there, there's the main page, and then there's a tab for classes. If I click on classes, there's a lot more data, and I see that it understands the structure of of my files, and it knows that there are classes. There's app, there's create project, picture, save data, timeline, and if I go into the, into, into the uh, app class, for instance, then I can find a bunch of different uh, functions that are contained within the app class. Or if I go into, let's see the timeline here, there's pop timeline, the the pop function uh, requires a timeline value, so some kind of uh, value for timeline, a value for file, uh, file type dir underscore images, so that must mean that when using the pop function you have to pass it both the timeline that you want to refer to and a directory filled with images so you can kind of derive from this that the project must consist of a bunch of images uh, which, are con- are, which are contained somewhere on the hard drive so you kind of learn quite a lot I think about the, the structure of this project just by reading just kind of an overview from Doxygen. It's really really useful uh, there's, let's see, int git resume. So git resume requires, um, that's a, another function, and a retur- the return type is int, and it requires a file full of images. So that's useful to know. I can click on, into each of these functions for even more information, and it tells me, it gives me, if there's any kind of documentation within the source code, like javadoc kind of, of documentation, then it, it uses those values here in Doxygen. So, in other words, I've got int timeline get resume with my required... It's telling me that there's a required argument of file dir underscore images. It says that the purpose of this function is get latest frame count. Now, it doesn't doesn't know this. This isn't Doxygen being supernaturally clever and being able to sort of understand the meaning of this function. It just knows that because, in, in my case, Apache NetBeans prompted me to fill out the documentation comments, which are valid, like Java doc comments or whatever, uh, Doxygen is able to parse that because it has an awareness of that format, and it uses that in this documentation. So that's pretty great. Uh, it knows what it returns. It's the largest underscore int which is the number assigned to the latest image, the parameters dir images project directory containing images. So all of this stuff is is taken from from a a well documented source code base which itself was sort of non-stop prompted by by the IDE because I'm sure that if it hadn't asked me for these values, I would have not known how to put those values in, I wouldn't have known what to say, whatever. So this is a great example of a bunch of different systems working really, really well together. And I think, in a way, I think it's, it's a real argument, I think, for, for, well, I guess, open standards and, and, and collaboration among open source, because, I mean, this is, and I'm not saying that this stuff doesn't happen in non-open source. I'm just saying that it's very, very integrated, this, the, the way that these systems are working together, and it's really, really great to see, uh, within and without open source. I mean, this is this is brilliant. This is such a cool... I mean, so much has gone into making this beautiful documentation, and part of it is Doxygen, but part of it is just the fact that the IDE prompts to force the developer to... or to encourage the developer to, to, to fill out the, the, the comments, and the fact that a standardized commenting format exists for Java code... I mean and that exists for other things too there's python i think has like i think google has has defined a, a very specific format for python comments and that can be used in a lot of different things so i mean it's there's plenty of plenty of examples of this happening all over the place i'm just saying this is really cool to see this this is a beautiful thing because this could be a big mess this could be um the oxygen guessing That that one comment at the top of the function is probably a description. But, I mean, would it know to describe the parameters? Would it know to describe the return value? I don't know. I mean, I guess we could try to make it guess at that. But, I mean, it's all very explicit and very well defined. And it's just so cool and so, so useful. So I'm going to click on a, a different class here now. So here's a save data class. And save data as class. Just kind of starting from the from the, the the top. There's static public member functions, and so it tells you what what the setup for this class has been. Static void init file file dir images throws I/O exception. Static void update file int count. Static void save file file dir images again, uh, and so on. Static private functions stuff that, that you're not gonna be able to use from outside the class, static final properties, prop equals new properties, detailed description, author, clatu, member function documentation, static int, uh, let's see, git count, file dir images, Get latest uh, frame count, parameters, dir images, project directory containing images, and so on. So lots and lots of useful information parsed and made beautiful for other people to be able to understand quickly. And like I say, this is very developer focused. This is not the stuff that most users are going to want to see. And it is—I do remember very, very early on seeing some project saying that it's well documented. And I, I remember going in and looking at the documentation and seeing this, 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 this web page-looking documentation thing of just literally just a, a laundry list of not literally a laundry list, uh, a, li- a laundry list of um, classes and functions, and I just remember thinking, that's not documentation. But, I mean, from a user perspective, yes, that, that is not documentation, that's not useful. However, if you are someone looking to either document exactly what a project actually does, which I feel like in technical documentation happens a lot less than it ought to, um, then, then you can look at this, you can look at the source code, the, the, the documentation of the source code. If you are looking to write a plugin for something that has some kind of plugin system, but you don't need, you don't know what the you know what the class that you are targeting actually returns, what data type it provides at the end of the uh, at the end of its of of its you know main function. Like what what's it actually spitting out as an instance of that class? You can find that out. Uh, if you don't know um, what parameters you need to feed something. You can find that out, and so on. So this is really, really useful for a certain user base. Uh, either those, you know, really, really almost developer hobbyist users, or or actual developers. Like this is exactly what they need, and this is a this is just such a nice resource to have if that's what you're looking for. Doxygen obviously isn't a, sub- a substitute for really good user documentation. Like, if, if you've developed an application, you want people to understand how to use it effectively, that should be documented some- by someone. And and that would not document classes and functions, it would document buttons and interfaces and menus and, and so on. But Doxygen, for one audience, is nearly priceless. So that's how you use Doxygen. That is that's really the extent of it. There's not a whole lot more to say to be honest. I mean there is more to say. There's you know, it's it's a system, you can customize it a lot. You can add boilerplate stuff. You can change the theme, all that other stuff. But I I don't feel like that's really the I don't think that's worth going over here because for that you you're gonna wanna explore on your own. But the basics of it is doxygen dash G doxy file and then edit that doxy file in your in your favorite text editor point it to your input provide a, a reasonable output directory for yourself and for your build system and then run doxygen doxy file and you can do that manually or you can do that through a make file or or whatever your build system is suddenly you've got great great documentation let's go get some coffee come back and talk about gcc <laughs> very good today. And that means it's time for GCC talk. So GCC is the GNU C compiler. That's what that stands for. G++ is the C++ compiler. GCJ is a Java compiler. So there's a couple of variations to this. Let's really quick look at how this all gets broken down in the actual package listing. So if I do an ls on slash var slash log slash packages slash gc and then tab a bunch of times I get gcc gfortran gcc dash g plus plus gcc dash go gcc dash java gcc dash objective C and so on. So let's actually find out how many of those are in this package that we're talking about right now. Looks like there are a couple of fake fake outs here and a couple of things we've already talked about. So there's C89 and C99 and a command called just CPP. I'm going to do an ls -l on user bin C89 to discover that that is a. Okay, actually I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do a file on user bin C89 to discover that that is actually a shell script. I imagine that if I Looked at it, it would be uh, some kind of invocation of GCC, and yes, it is. It's actually a very short file. It's about six lines, so it is a GCC dash ANSI ANSI dash standard equals C89 dash standard equals ISO 9899 colon 1990. So, in other words, this is catching instances when a uh, when a when a um, user is invoking GCC with specific options, and it is ensuring that some options are passed along with it. Uh, Same thing for C99, except its conditions are are different. Now, it looks like CPP is not C++, CPP. It is a C preprocessor, and um, it says that the C preprocessor, often known as CPP, is a macro processor, used automatically by GCC or, or any C compiler I, I guess could use it but but in this case we're sort of limiting our our scope to GCC so it's used by the C compiler GCC to transform your program before compilation. It is called a macro processor because it allows you to define macros, which are brief abbreviations for longer constructs. The C preprocessor is intended to be used only with C. C++ and Objective-C source code. In the past, it's been abused as a general text processor. It will choke on input which does not obey C's lexical rules. For example, apostrophes are interpreted as the beginning of character constants and cause errors. Also, you cannot rely on it preserving characteristics of the input which are not significant to C family languages. If a makefile is preprocessed, all the hard tabs will be removed and the makefile will no longer work. So what it's trying to say there is that this is very specific to its declared purpose, and that is to translate macros into something else, into valid C code. Now, as the man page just warned us, of course, it, it could theoretically work no matter what. Uh, you just feed it text, it'll, it will it will work. But it is warning you that you're not supposed to do that. It, it's, it wouldn't be happy with you if you did that. Does work though. Okay, so let's let's try one really quick. Uh, you can find predefined macros on gcc.gnu.org uh, in the documentation. Look in online docs slash cpp slash common predefined macros with dashes between each common dash predefined dash macros.html, and that tells you the really really common predefined macros. There's a, a pretty long page of them, and these are I, I guess well they're macros. I, I guess I shouldn't I shouldn't try to work my way around defining a macro. A m- macro is a predefined action that you can create. Someone creates that then some application or pro- processor interprets in a specific way. So here's here's a little example of how we could use one. Really basic example. Going to do emacs hello.c. Classic demo application here. Hash include, space, angle bracket, standard io.h, angle bracket. If by the end of the D series you don't know how to write a hello world C, uh, application in C, then I, I guess I probably haven't done my job. Int, space, main, parentheses, parentheses, uh, curly brace, printf, parentheses. Now, in, in the past, we've done like quote, hello world, close quote, close parentheses, semicolon, return zero, semicolon, close curly brace. Today we're going to use a macro. We're going to do printf, parentheses, underscore, underscore, version, v-e-r-s-i-o-n, underscore, underscore, close parentheses, semicolon. And then return zero, semicolon, close curly brace, save it, close it. So now we've got a little demo application here, which if I were to do a cat on, so cat hello.c, then I, I see what I just typed. That That's expect. If I do tac hello.c, I see what I just typed, except in reverse. Again, expected. I'm just kind of demonstrating what, what a processor does to a text file, right? So if I do a sed... Dash e single quote s slash version or is underscore underscore version underscore underscore slash hello world slash um, apostrophe and then feed it hello c then I see the file that I typed except instead of underscore underscore version in those parentheses I've got the string hello world the strings hello world so that's what a processor does a preprocessor looks at a text file and then does some kind of magical thing. So CPP does the same basic task except with a lot of predefined knowledge about, for instance, a macro in this case called underscore underscore version. And again, if you look at the online, uh, online documentation at GNU, uh, at gcc.gnu.org, you can find all of these, all of these macros already listed, or you know, listed in a, in in a row, and and it defines them. So underscore underscore version underscore underscore says this macro expands to a string constant which describes the version of the compiler in use. You should not rely on its contents having any particular form, but it can be counted on to contain at least the release number. Okay, good to know. So if I run this hello world application this hello.c through cpp so cpp space hello.c i get back the well i get a lot back actually i get quite a lot because it's it's doing c preprocessing so you will you'll remember that at the top of the file the the actual hello.c file i had a hash include standardio.h and in my c preprocessor version of this i have quite a lot more than that. I've got all the, I've got all of the things that, that this, that, that that is inherent in all of, in, in a standard C application. So I've got things like user-include-standard-c-predef.h, user-include-standard-io.h, uh, well, that is what I included. Uh, user include features.h. User include syscdefs.h, and so on. So that goes on for a while. And then it has some type definitions. Unsigned car, underscore, underscore u, underscore car. Short int, underscore, underscore u, and so on. So it goes on for, um, wow, a long time. Let's actually find out roughly 800 lines of text. And then at the very, very bottom here, I have my the text that I consciously typed in int main curly brace blah 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 print f wait a minute instead of underscore underscore version underscore underscore i've got quote 5.5.0 close quote and that's because that macro has been pre-processed transformed and changed in the output of my file and i guess that's a, a segue into gcc even though i don't know if gcc is exactly next in the list technically it is perfect so that was cpp we're done now gcc hello.c now remember if, if i do a cat hello.c i've still got that underscore underscore version in there right because cpp it trans it, it it did the transformation and and printed that transformation to standard out so it's it was it got swapped out but it wasn't like saved into the file now gcc if i do man gcc We get this description. When you invoke GCC, it normally does preprocessing, compilation, assembly, and linking. We've covered assembly and linking in the AS and LD episode, so we don't have to cover that. We've just now covered preprocessing with CPP. So technically all there is to cover is compiling, and I mean, that that in itself isn't... There isn't a whole lot to say about it, to be honest. I mean, there probably is a heck of a lot to say about it, but certainly nothing I'm qualified to say about it. So, as I've said before, I think programming today, we code in um, in programming languages that, that are, are vaguely familiar to us with words like while and return and if, then, else, things like that, whereas CPUs, the the little circuit chips in our computers, the the, the electric the electrical switches in our computers, they don't, they don't know the terms while and else and if, they speak in literally in, in series of, of electrical pulses and ones and zeros, that, that's the, that's, that's their language, so in order to get something into a quote-unquote machine language, some, the code needs to be compiled, and what, what that means is difficult for me to really truly understand myself, because I again have never I've never written a compiler, and so I, I feel like it's difficult to truly understand what the process is when when you haven't implemented it yourself. But if we take it on faith that there's some translation that needs to happen from human recognizable uh, languages that are written with with keys on keyboards that we can press rather than indescribable symbols uh, such as such as you might see if you do a cat on um, slash user bin cpp for instance actually I'm not gonna do a cat on that I'm just gonna do a head you see a bunch of nonsense I mean you see some stuff in there that you recognize that that's the stuff that you can generally pull out with the strings command, which we've talked about before, but as it is, all this gibberish that we see, by the way, if you do that and it screws up your terminal, just type in whether you can see it being echoed on your terminal or not, R-E-S-E-T, reset, and that'll kind of restore everything back to your terminal. Uh, it shouldn't mess anything up, but I don't know what terminal you're using, so um, that that's that's looking at a binary executable, and that can be a little bit funky, it can be a little bit um, puzzling, so that's more or less like that's the closest we, you and I will probably get well this is the closest I'll probably get to machine language so gcc is the thing that magically handles that translation and as we've we've discussed previously part of that is preprocessing to catch all those macros or any any of the macros Part of that is to compile, and then assemble, and then link to the libraries that, it's, that are required, and so on. This is gcc itself. gcc, and then some application. In this case, it's going to be hello.c. That worked. The default output of gcc is a.out. So if I do a .slash a.out, then I get the string 5.5.0. Why am I seeing that? Well, as we've already described, CPP is the preprocessor, and GCC is part of the routine. The 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 list of 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 tasks that GCC does it it first preprocesses your code. So GCC triggered CPP to run on my source code, hello.c. It found underscore underscore version underscore underscore, replaced it with the string five quote five dot zero no 5.5.0 close quote and then it compiled that into I, I'm guessing what is horribly confusing looking machine language. So if I do head a dot out again, yep, that looks pretty puzzling to me. You never, I can't understand that. So I guess that's machine language, and and then it it did all the assembly and then the linking. Uh, I can kind of confirm that to some degree with ldd a.out. dot out looks like it's linked to a bunch of, well, to a, a paltry number of uh, very important libraries on my system, so I can trust that GCC has done exactly what it has advertised. Let's do an ls-lh of a.out, uh, it looks, not, actually let's get get rid of that h, I forgot. Uh, It looks like it's 10,824 bytes, so roughly 11,000, or 11 kilobytes, we could say. And that's for a simple Hello World application. There you go. Now, we could also, if we wanted to, uh, if you'll recall, there was a command that we covered in, I think it was bin utils, I would would think, called readelf, and uh, we could do a dash dash symbols, a.out, and we see that we have... Looks to me like about 77 um, hits against you know, we have 77 symbols that are being del- um, that that are referenced in our in this ELF binary. What's an ELF binary? Well, I'll do a file of a dot out, and it tells me, sure enough, a dot out is ELF 64-bit LSB executable x86-64 version one, dynamically linked interpreter lib64 ld linux x blah 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 with debug info not stripped okay so this is telling us that we have an elf binary and you'll recall in previous episodes i've linked to in the show notes to a really good article series on what exactly elf binary meant, like what that actually means, and so if you never got a chance to go read that, you definitely should. It's a really good, interesting series. Uh, some of it'll go over your head probably, possibly, I don't know you. Um, some of it went over my head, and still, it was a really interesting series to read, because some stuff I caught, and and yeah, it, it, it does kind of shed a lot of light on, on how this stuff works, so go read that sometime. So that's an elf binary... It's not stripped, and this is something that... So stripping a binary means that you are able to go in and dissociate these symbols that are being exposed from the, the actual code that needs to be run. And the reason you might want to do that is uh, personally for file size. So let's try compiling this again, this time with the st- symbols stripped. So, in, in many scripts, they, they strip symbols out after compiling because it is a step that you can take after the fact. But GCC lets you do it during compiling as well, if you have the presence of mind to do that. And the way that you do that is GCC S for strip, hello.c, for example. And then O, I'm going to call it hello ver, as in version. And then I'll do an ls l on hello. Now it's 6,200 bytes, quite a lot different than 11,000. So that's 6.1 kilo, k- kilobytes versus 11 kilobytes. Again, we're, we're doing this with a hello world application, so it's, it's, we're not talking about huge, huge binaries here, but of course it scales up. If, if you have a bigger binary and you strip stuff from that, then you're likely to see greater savings. And again, that's the dash S option. And and if you don't do it, or if you suspect that a a make file hasn't stripped, then you can always do it after the fact. There is a command called strip. Strip, and then let's do strip a. Well, I guess ls -l first a dot out just to confirm that it's ten thousand eight hundred and twenty-four bytes. Yeah, it is. And now I'll do strip a dot out, and it's reduced to six thousand two hundred. And of course, we could also just do readelf dash symbol, symbols, symbol or symbols, symbols. I think uh, a dot out. Hey, I only have seven instead of seventy-seven returns uh, in is uh, symbols reported. So that seems to have worked. So GCC dash S and strip are are basically the same as far as I can tell. Another way to reduce file size potentially is optimization. Optimization is the dash O option in GCC, it's the dash capital O. And it's it's very confusing, potentially, if you're not familiar with it, because it kind of looks like dash zero, but it, it is very importantly and significantly dash O for optimization, I assume, and, I mean, there are no long options, well, there are long options, but not everything has a long option in GCC, so dash capital O, that's optimization, and you can invoke optimization at different levels, So dash O, or dash O1, does the sort of the bare minimum optimization. Dash O2 optimizes more. O3 does even more. And dash OS... As in Sierra, optimizes for size. So there are, and, and there are yet more variations, dash O fast, dash O G, lots of different optimizations. And, and I think that in a way sort of speaks to what exactly we mean by the term optimization, because Optimization could mean everything's going to be faster and better, but it also could mean like dash o g for uh, optimizing for debugging. That actually might not be the case. It may not be faster and better, but you'll get a lot more feedback when you need to do when you're when you're debugging the thing. Which as a developer, you might have a a, a particular need for additional information at, at any given point. So optimization doesn't always just mean make my computer better, or, you know, make this application run on my computer better. It just means that it's it's leaning into one thing or another in a different way. By default, from what I understand, GCC has a goal of reducing the cost of compilation and making debugging work in a reasonable way. You know, so sort of finding a good middle ground. And I guess part of the the problem with compiling is that it it does it costs cpu right if you if you compile and you do a dash j 6 or 8 or however many cores you have then your cpu is being is being utilized on all cores you'll see the the activity on cpus go way up your your computer may not be able to perform as well because now you're compiling with you know your your cpu cycles are being occupied by by translating code from one language into a machine language so you can see that. Um, I feel like in, in real life, a lot of us normal, quote unquote, normal computer users, we don't see that activity that often because we're not usually compiling all the time. But for a developer who might be building and rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding, that's a real cost. And so optimizing, sometimes that, that actually matters. And certain packages, like web, WebKit, or maybe it's GTK WebKit, I forget, one of those two, or maybe both of them, are huge and take forever to compile. And literally, you need a certain amount of RAM on your system to even expect to be able to compile all of that. Heck, Chrome, Chromium, Chromium OS is that way. It, it, it requires a healthy amount of RAM and a really healthy amount of hard drive space. And you can actually fail a build. Because you'll run out of RAM if if you're if you're doing it on you know the wrong system as it were, um, because it just runs out of uh, runs out of RAM while it's compiling. It keeps storing stuff there, and there's no more there to store stuff. So anyway, that's that's optimizing options, I guess. But you can see those yourself. You can see what optimizing does by doing gcc dash capital Q dash dash help equals optimizers, and that'll give you a full list. Of all the options that are invoked potentially with with optimization, Uh, and it shows you what are turned on by default and what are not, you know what's enabled and what's disabled and so on. You can look at the documentation on gcc.gnu.org/online/docs/gcc/optimized-Options.html to get a breakdown for each you know for each kind of optimization available to you and which options are activated when you invoke those. Now as a quick little demonstration, I'm just gonna go into this Rose Garden code base that I have, and it's built on CMake. Rose Garden is a digital audio workstation. I I, I kinda like it, I use it sometimes, and, and I happen to have its code base lying around, so I'm just arbitrarily using it as an example. It's based on CMake, so I'm going to first, in one terminal window, start that building. So I'll just do it CMake, Dot dot and then make dash j six so that's building and then I'm going to get another copy of it and do a cc make and that didn't work because I'm in the wrong directory I'm assuming yep okay so do a cc make and then toggle on the advanced options and go down to this option when building a release, I'm going to add GCC, I mean GCC is already there, but GCC dash capital O, let's do three, see what happens with that, and s- configure that, and quit, and then build that. Okay, so while that's building, I'll go back over here and look at what Rose Garden without optimization gave me. It's 23,474,000 1, hundred and twelve bytes. So that's about 23 megabyte. And if I go into the one that was optimized and do an ls-l on Rose Garden, I see that it's 16,407,496 bytes. So that's about 16 megabytes. So, just with the optimization, I, I was able to carve off 6 or 7 megabytes. That's pretty great. That's That's a pretty big savings especially if you are a, a packaging service like uh, you know if if you are the Fedora packaging team and you are hosting binary packages of Rose Garden for all of your users to download and potentially or potentially download and use that's that could be quite a lot of, of savings for storage and for bandwidth and so on and for for your user bandwidth that's uh, that's kind of nice as well and this is all under the assumption that there are there are certain things that are just safe to 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 turn off or to to, in, to either enable or disable and what exactly those are um, you you can you can kind of see from looking at the at the options that are that are um, enabled under optimization and I mean there are a lot of them and I guess this is a good time to just talk about just how many options there are in GCC and why I'm not going to ever get through all of them uh, it would probably take a year to go through all the options in gcc there are options for the languages themselves language language options like dash ansi dash standard dash um those are the two exciting ones there um there are the c plus plus ones there are objective c and objective c plus plus language options there are language independent options like message length, and diagnostic show location, diagnostic color, diagnostic show option, and so on, there are warning options, which usually start with a dash capital W, so sometimes you'll see a warning as you're compiling something, dash W pedantic, or dash W fatal errors, or dash W whatever, and those are warnings, those aren't Those aren't fatal. Those are warnings. I don't know actually what dash w fatal errors is. I'd have to look at that one. That does sound pretty serious. I'm. uh, I'll I'll have to admit. But um, generally speaking, the warnings are warnings. So um, oh, here's one that yeah w no w no dash format dash extra dash args w no dash free dash non heap dash objects. I've seen that kind of warning a lot where it's because you look at it and you think what's a w no. Well, it's, it's a dash W, and then the word no, div by zero, or, or whatever it's warning you about. Um, and then there are debugging options. So those might be dash F, um, disable IPA pass name, dash F, disable whatever. So there's optimization options, there's preprocessor options, there's assembler options, there's linker options, there's direct di- directory options, and so on. And and I that literally that's not even all of them. There's GNU Linux options. There's H8/300, DEC Alpha, IA64, LM32, MCore, MEP, MicroBlaze. I mean, it's just a list, 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 just keeps going and going and going. So that's just something to be aware of. It is potentially a very well. It is a very powerful application, but um, you could get lost in here pretty easily. But a lot of these, I feel, are so specific to certain requirements that you're likely to discover them on an as-needed basis. And I, I, I would think that that would be a pretty common um, way of of discovering these. Is just kind of think, oh, I have this problem that I have to solve. How do I solve it? And then you discover, oh, th- I discover it with with through through this, you know, through this mechanism, I, I solve it with this option, whatever. Um. So I'm trying to get some of the basics really, um, some of the some of the really important ones, I guess, or maybe not so important. I mean, it's arguable that a lot of these aren't important because a lot of these are going to be handled by your make file. And so you're not going to potentially be interacting with these yourself, necessarily. You might be interacting with these through auto tools or CMake, which are going to invoke all of the sort of obvious options for you. So there is that argument, and I think it's a... It's a pretty good argument. I think for for many of us is that that isn't that necessarily that big of a deal. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the dash um, o options i i I daren't go into the dash f options, but I did mention them because because you could go into the man page and look or the info page and look at the at the different at the different um options dash F obj C dash ABI dash version for instance. So let's say you are writing Objective-C code. Don't know why you would be, but people do. Um, and you realize that you need to specify a certain ABI version. Well, now you know how to do that. And and so again, that's kind of how you would, I, I would feel that you would probably compile your code, experience the error, and then and then look up either in the info page or online how to fix that error and it would it would all trace back to well look up this option figure out what you need to tell it and then you' you'll be good to go all right so um yeah let's talk about really quickly the dash l and the dash i options because those are actually I could see people using those before before using many of the advanced I mean, dash f options and dash g options and dash m options and so on so the dash l option is your your gateway to pointing GCC to a specific library file that your code depends upon. That for whatever reason isn't in a, a an obvious place. It's not some place where where GCC would know to look for it. Dash i is this is dash capital i or dash capital l. So dash capital l is for library. Dash i is for include files. So those would be things like your header files if they're not in a in a normal expected place. And again, dot .slash configure ought to discover this stuff for you, and it ought to warn you when they're not found. And maybe as a result, you do need to invoke GCC with a dash capital I or a dash capital L. But you do that, and you can point them to a specific location. So you could do something like gcc-capital I slash user slash include. And that drives me crazy, because uh, from what I understand, and you're not supposed to put a space between the dash i and then the location so it always kills me because then you're trying to tab complete but bash doesn't recognize the completion because it can't figure out why your path starts with a dash i anyway maybe maybe i need to explore that more maybe it's simpler than i th- realized to get around that uh so i i'm going to do d- uh, gcc dash capital i user include for instance hello and then of course i have an a dot out that works as expected because, well, obviously it does because it's a functioning um, application. So um, that's dash capital I and dash capital L. And I could come up with a more complex example where I write a library and then try to compile something with that library without having a location for that library. But I'm not going to bother doing that because that seems like a lot of work. You now know that dash capital I and dash capital L are, are things that are available to you. And wow, I'm running out of time. So, I mean, hopefully this talk about GCC has demonstrated sort of the flexibility of GCC because it has a lot of options, and also the kind of the interdependence of GCC on other components of your system, whether it's a library or an included file, or whether it's a macro, or whether it's an assembler program, or a linker program, whatever it is, GCC, kind of works with a bunch of other things and pulls in other, pulls in pulls in code or pulls in binaries to kind of compile your code as it needs to compile in order to get run correctly on your system. And you can kind of see that, I mean, you can see it break down, you know, we've done that already, right? I mean, if we do a GCC-E, I think it is, we could do hello.c, and and that's just running. That's you'll get the pre preprocessed the the processor code, the processor output from CPP because the dash -e says stop after pre processing, and we did the same thing. If you'll recall, we stopped after compa uh, what was it? We stopped after assembling, and then we did the linking manually or something in a previous episode. So GCC has a little bit of flexibility there, and and you can expose that flexibility by by making it stop at certain points. And you can break it, too. I mean, we could do, for instance, if I copy hello, or I could even just cat hello.c into a file called hello dot I, dot I The extension matters to gcc. So if I say gcc hello dot i, it errors out. It's, it, it can't continue. It says there's a problem. There's a stray hash in, in the program, right at the beginning of the program, hash include, doesn't know what to do with that, uh, and then it has another error here, it says expected s- some number of tokens before this other token, and it's, it's finding an error with the angle bracket, it doesn't know what to do that with that, because none of this makes sense to it, because the dash, or the, the, the dot i, rather, hello dot i, tells gcc, and you can see this in the info page, uh, it says that if you name a file with .i, a C a C file ending in .i, tells GCC not to pre-process that file. Whereas the .c identifies a file that must be pre-pro- pre-processed. .ii is C++ code that should not be processed. Um, i is an Objective C file that should not be or must not be uh, pre-processed, and so on. So there's there's a, You can kind of mess around with GCC as much as you need to, but I think, I think it's safe, and I'm sure someone's gonna email me justifiably and tell me that this is not safe to say, but I, I feel like it's safe to say that most of us, some of us, okay, that there, I've revised it, some of us, are not going to really need a lot of the options in GCC, that for many of us, we're either going to be interacting with GCC through Makefiles, or CMake, or, or whatever, well, yeah. So, AutoTools or CMake, which both of you, which use some kind of Makefile, um, or we're going to be interacting with it just as GCC, point it to a file and let it compile. Maybe point it to an include folder. Maybe point it to a library, but sort of like I don't know. You're not going to really go crazy with all these options yourself because I don't think that's how normally people do write their GCC commands. I think they do let a build uh, a build. A build file generator manage a lot of those options for them or they let they, they let GCC manage it for them uh, you know I've never written out all the options for optimizing dash 03 or dash 02 whatever but I've definitely used dash 02 and dash 03 that's for sure so yes there's a lot there but I don't feel like it's all necessarily everyday user facing or even everyday developer facing. Someone can email me and tell me I'm wrong. I'm, I'm happy to hear that as well because, um, you know, I certainly live in my little bubble of sort of, of, of what I do on a computer and it could be quite different for someone else. Maybe someone else has all of these options memorized, I don't know. But I do feel like it's more or less safe to just kind of fall back on saying, okay, well I'm gonna let my make file handle this for me. I will talk about one, one aspect of GCC before we go that you don't always hear about and, and that is about um, maybe some of the security options and this is this is an interesting one because uh, it's, it's really easy to use. We don't always use it and um, I guess there are... I guess it's an ongoing conversation as to whether or not this should be used all the time. I know Fedora has a certain number of things that they compile with something called PIE, which is Position Independent Executable. And the idea here is that a, an execute, a binary executable and its dependencies get loaded into random places into memory, which reduces the opportunity, or the reliability, rather, of a return-oriented programming attack to be made against a computer because when such a thing is looking for certain data in certain locations it can no longer rely on that data being in those locations of course i don't know i don't know about the sort of like okay if the attack is automated when something is launched i mean could you just continue to attack every time it's launched and just hope that at one point you hit the lottery and you've got the correct locations I don't know the probability of that, I don't know enough about it, but I do know that position independent executables are a thing, it is something that you can use in GCC, and um, whether it's worth it or not is, I guess, maybe technically up to you, but um, you can try it. So it's gcc-pie, for position independent code, fpie, those are the two options to sort of enable this, and then what... Directory am I in? I'm not in my demo directory. Okay, here we go. And then hello.c, and we'll do a dash o of hello pi. Let's do that. And actually, we could also strip it. I'm going to add the dash s option there. So now I've got a hello pie that is presumably smaller than my first one, although I'll never know for sure, I guess. dot slash uh, hello pi should just echo that, that same old version string, and it does. So every time I'm running it, it, it it's pretty much acting exactly the same from my perspective. But on the back end, I know, or I trust, that the, the components that are required to run that thing are getting loaded into different locations in, in, my, um, in memory. So that's PIE. You can, you can tell a PIE executable from a standard executable, because when you do file hello pi, for instance, you get that ELF 64-bit LSB pi executable, and so on. Whereas if I did that on just like a dot out, of course I get 64-bit LSB executable, no pie. So that's something that that exists. It's something that you could use. You could try it out, see see if it works. Um, like I say, there still seems to be some debate going on whether or not that's really something that's worth doing. And I guess there might be a performance hit. Maybe I'm not really sure. So it, it's kind of interesting though. And um, yeah, I mean there are a lot of sort of security-minded things that both readelf and GCC kind of interact with, um, but since I'm not an expert, I'm not going to start advising people on on the the best practices for compiling um, and what to leave in, what to leave out, and how to how how to turn off executable um, executable uh, parts of, of memory and and weird things like that. So, but but it is a it is a fascinating study if you go down that path. There there are lots of different options that you can enable and disable to, uh, you know, alter the way that your executable sort of works at a very, very low level. I think that's everything I've got about GCC. Like I say, it's a huge application, lots of options. There's no way that any, any podcast could possibly do it justice in one or five episodes. It would just be something that we, it would just go on and on. And unfortunately, I'm not qualified for that. It sounds like a great, App, it sounds like a great podcast, and I think someone could do that show, and I think it would be pretty darned interesting to hear. And I, I know I'm running out of time, so really quickly I just want to cover gcov so that we don't have to go back into this package next time. gcov is for code coverage, and uh, the invocation of this requires a little bit of setup because you need, you need to generate reports, essentially. So this is a little bit like um, the application that I've, Forgotten about now. G what was it? G cap G, G something. Where where it was? Um, it was looking at G graph or something like that. I don't know. Uh, anyway, this is G cov. So you don't you don't run it r- immediately. First, um, I'm gonna put all of my source files here. Hello C into a dedicated project directory because that because it's gonna generate a bunch of other stuff. Might as well keep everything together. So the first thing that you want to do is gcc dash dash coverage and then hello.c dash c. This generates, actually let me let me see what this generates. Um, yeah, let me get rid of all the cruft that I have in here. So gcc coverage, hello c C. This generates the GCNO file. GCNO file. Which is a coverage. It's dash f test coverage is is what that is what that has run with essentially. After that, we can run gcc. Wait, didn't that also? Yeah, it also generated the object file hello.o, um, which is kind of important. Now we can do a gcc dash dash uh, coverage again, hello.o. So now we're running against the object file, which creates the a.out file that we can actually run. That's our binary. That's the that's the binary executable. And that returns, of course, because I'm still using that macro, underscore, underscore, version, underscore, underscore, it returns 5.5.0. So that's that's expected in this case. So next we can run the actual gcov command. And uh, first I'll just run it without anything. It shows a bunch of different options. So I'm gonna do gcov on hello.c dash dash demangled-names. I think that's all I'm going to put there. There's a couple of different choices, um, but I think that's the that's really the only one that's useful right now. Actually, you know what? dash dash function dash summaries. That's a good one. Okay, and it tells me that it's executed 100% of three lines of code, and it's creating a file called hello c.gcov, and that's kind of the report that really matters. So if you do a less on hello.c.gcov, you get, uh, in my case, a very brief little report of exactly what my, what my uh, program contains. And under normal circumstances, if, if I had a better example here, it would tell me things like how many times a function gets called, which is pretty useful if you think about, you know, like, what your code is actually doing when it gets run uh how many times does that function get called is is something that should only be getting called once getting called like 20 times because you because you call it in a loop that you didn't mean to call it in or something or or you know something's pinging something's invoking a function that then invokes your other function that doesn't need to be func- uh, invoked, uh, how many times it returns a, a value, and what percentage of the function's blocks have been executed, all kinds of information about just kind of like what your code is doing. And I gotta say, even if you don't exactly understand the what what all of it, what, what the significance of everything, um, it's not a bad thing to look at from time to time, because it does at least give you a different angle from which to view your code, and that can be rather revealing. And I know that for me, with with coding, a lot of times I do start to lose track. You know, just because the the way that you are coming up with ideas as you're typing them down, you think, okay, well, I need to, I I need I need to have this data in order for this process to work. And then later you realize that, well, actually you don't need that data anymore because you've written that out of this process and it's become its own dedicated function that you can call any time that you want and 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 then you realize or and then you start to question well okay so if 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 i don't need that then why am i calling it at all here is that still useful or do i not can i just drop that as well and and you just start to lose sight of what exactly in your code you're actually invoking and this is really useful to get to get an idea of what is getting invoked what is getting run how much of it is getting run through through a through a a test launch um you know, by the books, just reading the source code, what exactly is happening. And this, this gives you a, an interesting take on that. So, yeah, I just feel like usually as developers, especially hobbyist developers, we have kind of, one might have two ways of looking at code. You have the way that you're looking at your code when you're typing it, you know, in your IDE or your text editor or whatever it is that you're using. And then you have it when it's running. As you start to develop your skills a little bit more, maybe you start to get um, comfortable with a debugger. And so that's another way to look at your code. Now you've got three ways. You've got the the raw code, the compiled code, or or the running code. If it's not compiled exactly, maybe it's interpreted, but still somewhere it's gotten compiled, but you know what I mean. So it's running code. And then you've got the debug output that that maybe you're getting from GDB or something like that. And then now with this, with GCOV, you've got yet a fourth way to look at it. You've got this kind of regimented kind of analysis of what your code is doing, and that might reveal something to you so that you can then uh, optimize it in, in some unique way. I think that's truly everything way over time, I think. That's okay. We've gotten through GCC. It was a big one. There's, there's obviously a lot more to talk about with GCC, but I think this gives you kind of an idea of, of everything that it does. And it's probably worth mentioning because uh, because I keep saying I'm out of time, so why not just keep talking? Uh, but it is worth mentioning that GCC, in a, in a way, I think, and I can't confirm, I can't I can't back this up with experience, but I feel like GCC, in a way, had had the you know functionally the impact of for instance the linux kernel and by that i mean like if you think of yourself maybe before and after the the linux kernel i mean whether it's when the linux kernel was actually created or when you knew it was a thing it, it was very sort of transformative maybe i mean i know it was that for me like after i discovered linux it was i mean that was a huge deal it changed the way that i saw computers changed the way that i saw the world it, it just made it such a huge impact and i think for its time gcc probably was in many ways that for a lot of people and i know that there's an argument that well even without this this you know watershed moment this big turning point in history it, we would have gotten to the same place by some other avenue and i think that's a valid argument. I think we could say the same thing about the Linux kernel. If it hadn't been the Linux kernel, it would have been something else, right? It would have been BSD that we would have all discovered, and we'd have gone down that path. Or it would have been Minix that we, we we grabbed and forced into everyday use, or something. Something would have happened. Haiku. Who knows what it would have been? We would have gotten here in the end, probably, arguably. But I think that that GCC, in, in the same way, it kind of had that same impact in the world because at that time you know in the mid 80s or early 80s or whatever i don't believe that everyone would have had access to a c compiler that's just not something everyone really should have had if you look back at what was being provided to people and i think that that that's a big deal gcc made a big splash and it it impacted a lot of both lives and processes and i don't think one should underestimate that i mean it doesn't mean anything about GCC, it's not like a holy relic or anything, I'm just saying, GCC was a big deal. It made a big impact, it changed a lot of lives, it changed a lot of technology, and in some ways, we we kind of, it's easy to sort of look past that and forget it, because now we just take it for granted. It's just GCC, it's the thing that you install when you want to compile software. Uh, On Slackware, it's just a thing that you have anyway, but when it was when it was developed, I mean, it was a, a really, really big deal. And for the longest of times, I mean, it was kind of the only deal. I mean, that was the one. That was the compiler. I mean, now we have LLVM or CLANG or Clang or whatever we, however we refer to it. And it seems to be really nice, and I've used it a couple of times, and I've quite liked some of its features, actually. And it caught some errors that GCC didn't catch, and that, you know, it, it's a different thing. It's an option, and it's great that that exists now. But I just kind of want to end this on sort of a just a recognition of how big a deal GCC was for the development of open source free software computing like it was a really really big deal and i think i think one could argue and there are counter arguments but one could argue that without GCC there just wouldn't be free software there wouldn't be open source there probably wouldn't be linux i mean i think that's an arguable thing that you could that you could say i, I Again, counter-arguments, I'm sure. I'm sure there are other ways that it could have happened. People could have just compiled with proprietary compilers, but then would you have had as many people contributing because they wouldn't have all had access to proprietary compilers? You know, it's, it's all a big what-if and a big alternate history sort of exercise in ultimately what is futility. GCC was a big deal. It was the Linux kernel of its time. Not literally. Obviously, it's not a kernel at all. It's, it's not related to Linux in any way. But in its time, it was that kind of impact on the computing world and on the development world, then certainly if you're running Slackware, you're using it all the time if you're using slackbuilds.org. That's such a lot of power to have just at your fingertips without really really even thinking about it. And, th- and the power is, of course, and I go back to this fairly regularly, I guess, but the power is that source code is its own packaging format. We, because of GCC, we can trade programs, we can trade applications with one another really easily by just giving each other text files, and then GCC magically transforms it into very, very useful applications. It's astonishing if you really, really think about it. So GCC is a huge feature in terms of me having paid 50 bucks or whatever I pay for Slackware, and, and I get GCC just casually as a part of that package, as part of the package deal. Um, it's it's kind of staggering. So I just want to kind of convey the importance and significance of of a compiler a free 0 dollar fully all all of the liberties that you need bundled along with it C compiler it's a really 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 powerful tool even though we may not understand all of its options we may not even use it all that often ourselves, but it is, it is a truly, truly powerful force that drives open source. So enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the show. I will talk to you next week. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time. with your friends now and there is nothing more to worry about.